Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. I have been loving doing solo episodes, and I hope that you've enjoyed them as well. Today, I wanted to do kind of a fun one and have some good conversations around financial pitfalls and things that I typically see. So I've identified nine. Now, these are not conclusive of all of the different financial pitfalls we'll run into in our lives, but these are nine of the most common ones that I often see. So let's go ahead and dive in. The first financial pitfall that I see is taking out payday loans. Now, if you're not familiar with what a payday loan is, it's a short-term loan to get some quick cash. This is typically called a payday loan because generally speaking, you would pay the loan off on your next paycheck, which is interesting because that tends to be exactly how Americans use them. The average payday loan is $375 for two weeks, and the average paid in fees is $520. So it's a ton of money for sure. There's about 12 million Americans that use payday loans. Now here's the interesting thing too. Payday lenders target and set up shop in low income neighborhoods. They target those that most utilize their services, which tends to be lower income people. Now, if you think about that, that's kind of messed up, right? It's kind of insane to see that they are almost predatory lending. And in fact, many payday lenders have even gotten in trouble for predatory lending because of this kind of stuff. So it really is a big issue. And there are some states that have lots of regulations around payday loans. There are some that don't. Uh, Texas is actually the most common for utilizing payday loans, which I thought was kind of interesting. And states without regulations can have payday loan rates range from, sit down for this one, 391% to 521%. That is insane. So all that to say, I don't think I have to convince you anymore, but do your best to avoid financial pitfall number one, taking out payday loans. The second financial pitfall that I often see, and this one kind of bums me out, but it's getting a credit card for the rewards. Now, let me be very, very clear. I love credit card hacking. I do. I think it's great. I do a little bit of that myself. I don't love credit card hacking if you are trying to get out of credit card debt. So if you already have a a cycle or some history with uh, not managing credit cards correctly, and you don't have a large expense that you are already planning on purchasing and you have the cash for, credit card hacking is not going to be a good thing for you because it's going to incentivize you to hit these minimum spends so that you do get those bonus points or you do get that bonus cash or whatever the credit card is offering. It encourages you to spend more. So for example, one of my favorite cards is the Chase Sapphire Preferred. I think it's a great card. I really do. With that card, you have to spend $4,000 within three months. And when you do that, you get anywhere between like 75,000 bonus points up to 100,000 bonus points, depending on 
on what offer they're they're giving you. And so it's a great incentive, but if you are encouraging yourself to spend $4,000 that you typically would not spend, it's just getting you in a bit of trouble. Now, a lot of people will say, hey, if you don't have that minimum spend currently, it's okay. Go to your friends, your family, offer to have their expenses put onto your card temporarily. I personally just do not think it's worth mixing that. I just really like to keep my own private life private and I like to not have to rely on other people for that kind of stuff. And so that's just me personally. You might be different, but I definitely do not encourage people to get credit card for the rewards when you're trying to get out of debt. Let me give you an example of when credit card hacking I think is very appropriate. If you are buying, say, some new appliances for your house, maybe you just got a house, you have to buy a fridge, a stove, a microwave, a washer and dryer, and that total expense will be, I don't know, $5,000. So $5,000 and you saved up and you have $5,000 chilling in a checking account or a savings account in order to buy those those appliances currently, like that's your already your situation, you already have the cash for it, then heck yeah, I would time a credit card, I would open one up with a good bonus point system in place. I would make those purchases. And then I would get my bonus points and go take a sweet vacation. Totally appropriate. But there are times to do this. And there's times not to when you're trying to climb your way out of credit card debt, or you don't have the cash to make those purchases already. Not a good time for credit card hacking. Financial pitfall number three. Oh, this one hurts my heart. I feel like I talk about this all the time on Instagram as well. And that is selling investments when the stock market quote unquote crashes. So when the stock market goes down, some people have the tendency to panic. We get a little scared, right? It's scary to see your accounts drop. And sometimes we think to ourselves, I just should cut my losses now and just sell and get out of this investment because I am not going to get my money back. But the big issue here is we sometimes forget that when it comes to investing, we think we're losing money just like we think we're gaining money, but neither one is really true. We don't really gain money and we don't lose money until we sell. Once you sell, that's when you actualize a gain or a loss. So until then, it's just a paper gain or loss. And so sometimes we get so confused and we get so concerned because when you see your accounts go down and maybe you don't understand the stock market as a whole and we like look at like the, I don't know, two month or six month or even one year view instead of zooming out and saying, what was five years? What was 10 years? What has this done since the inception? It's a very different scenario when you do that. I've posted some pictures of this on Instagram too, where I share you know, the S&P 500, what it looks like for one quarter versus when you zoom out and look at it over the course of one year or five years. And it's consistently going up. But when we see that short-term snapshot, it is scary. It even freaks me out sometimes. So that's why it's so important when it comes to investing that you zoom out and you look at the overall trend line. Here's a caveat. If the investment is risky, now risky meaning like a single stock or crypto or something like that, and it's like that's a different scenario than a well-diversified index fund or exchange-traded fund. I'm not gonna give advice on anything financial investment related. I'll give you suggestions and like scenarios and education. So every investment is a little bit different. So I'm not really qualified to to tell you that. However, I can say my stress level would be drastically different if I was invested all in single stocks and they started to go down significantly. That would freak me out. Seeing my index fund go down a little bit, I'm really not that concerned because it's very diversified. I have some of my stocks are over 3,600 in one singular fund. 
And so if one company starts to go down, I'm not concerned because they have 3,600 in one fund. So that's why it's so important to remember that paper gains and losses are just that. And you don't need to panic. You don't need to sell. It will do its thing and go up and down, but look at that long-term snapshot. Here's an interesting piece of data too. There is an article on yale.edu, so it's econ.yale.edu, and it's showing the S&P 500 historical data. And so that's what they used to really look at this and to compile this data. And this was for index funds. One of the things that I thought was fascinating is it says the longer you hold that index fund, the higher the positive returns. So let's put some numbers to this. People that held their index fund, their S&P 500 index fund for one year, had a 74% odds of having a positive return. Pretty good, right? So most, you know, three out of four people would have a positive return. In 10 years, if you hold on to an index fund for 10 years, that is a 95% odds of having a positive return. After 15 years, it's a 100% odds of having a positive return. Do you see where we're going with this? If you're in a well-balanced, diversified index fund, you're going to be just fine. So when the stock market starts to go down, you don't have to worry. You're going to be okay. So the biggest financial pitfall that I see when it comes to investing, and that's financial pitfall number three, is selling investments when the stock market crashes. Let's head over to financial pitfall number four, which is avoiding anything that scares you. Now, let me be clear. It's very normal to be scared in the beginning. Anything that we do that's new and we've never tried it before is bound to stir up a lot of emotions in us. That's very, very normal. It's actually our brains trying to protect us from danger. When we do something new or we see something new, immediately our brain is kind of peaked. We're a little bit curious. And then in general, we get kind of protective. Our, our brain's trying to keep us alive. And so it says, hey, this is new. This is scary. Don't do this. And that's fine. That's your brain just doing what it does. And in some circumstances, that's very appropriate. It could save you from major danger. But in most of our life circumstances, we're not really in a life or death scenario. And so it really holds us back. But here's the thing. Confidence comes from competence. And competence comes from experience. So think about it this way. If you're investing for the first time, it's kind of scary as hell. If you're buying your first house, also really scary. You get that stack of documents and you're looking at it and they're like, sign here, 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 and like 90 other places. And you're like, oh my God, what am I signing up for? It's a little scary. Moving out of your parents' house when you were 18, I mean, I don't know. Maybe you guys were like, really, really scared. You could have been really excited. For most of us, it was probably a combination. It was a little bit exciting and totally scary. We started to say like, oh my God, how am I going to pay for rent? Like, what am I going to do? What if I'm home alone? For a lot of people, that's a very scary decision. Negotiating your salary is totally scary. But just because it's scary doesn't mean we should avoid it. It means that we just need more experience and or maybe even some more education around the topic so we feel a little bit more competent. And then remember, competence equals confidence. And so that is uh, financial pitfall number four, avoiding anything that scares you. Now, before we dive into financial pitfall number five, let's hear a quick word from today's sponsor, Indeed. I'm super happy that Indeed has been a consistent contributor to this show. So let's hear a quick word from them. You're ready to make the leap and turn your passion into profit, but you need the right team to make it happen. Indeed makes it easy to hire and build a team with the right skills to make your dreams a reality. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is a hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. 
Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you every step of the hiring process. You can find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. I really like virtual interviews because it saves you time. You can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place. Indeed makes it easy for you to connect with your applicants. You don't need to install anything extra, and Indeed's virtual interviews work from your browser. You can do it all in one place with Indeed. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash money nerds. Offer valid through April 30th. Go to Indeed.com slash money nerds to claim your $75 credit before April 30th. Indeed.com slash money nerds. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Okay, financial pitfall number five, not doing the math before taking out student loans. Now, I I know this is a very tough topic for a lot of people, and this is one that I wish I actually had more education around before I took out my own student loans. Thankfully, I didn't take out so much that it was crippling, but it, I mean, it did put a little bit of a dent in my life for some time, a lot of stress too. But if I could go back and give young Whitney more advice, or I'd get the, the chance to talk to younger people, what I would tell them is make sure you do the math before taking out a student loan. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir on this, but here's what I mean when I say do the math. Before taking out any student loans, it's really important to run a simple ROI, return on investment scenario, to see if the amount of debt, the magnitude of debt that you might be taking out on a loan, a student loan, makes financial sense. Now, at the end of the day, this is still a very important financial decision. And so let's put some math to this. Taking out maybe $100,000 in loans, so maybe you decide I'm going to I'm thinking of going out of state for for college and that's going to be more expensive and I'm not going to work during college, so I have to take out the maximum amount for living expenses. And so you're doing all of this and you are running the scenario to see that you're going to be about $100,000 in student debt for a degree that might pay maybe $35,000 per year. So it doesn't take a genius to see that mathematically, that's not a good investment. Now, if it's $100,000 in loans and you're going to make $150,000 out of college, like, heck yes, that that does make sense. It, it definitely does. But be really careful about the student loan stuff. I, I see a lot of people do this for even grad school. And for most people, we don't run this scenario nearly to the extent that we should. We just immediately say, yes, give me the loans. And we don't really think through a lot of the longer term repercussions. And I think part of that is because we are encouraging people to just go off to college and get any degree. It doesn't really matter. Just go to college. That's your ticket to more money. And what I think a lot of people are starting to see is that's not necessarily true. And so they're coming out of, of school with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt for a degree that they thought they'd be making way more money because that's what they were told and their starting salary is maybe $50,000. Like it's a really, really rough scenario. I'm not putting all of the blame on the consumer, but the only thing we can control is ourselves. And so it's really important to run those scenarios before taking on any type of debt, whether it's a student loan, a car loan, a house loan, like whatever the heck kind of loan it is, it's very important to run the numbers. So that is financial pitfall number five, not doing the math before taking out a student loan. Financial pitfall number six, trying to get rich quick. Now, I have a strong feeling if you listen to this podcast, you are probably not one of those get rich quick kind of people. Most people that care about their money are not trying to find the next latest and greatest. We're not putting all of our money into 
a really great investment that our neighbor guarantees 20% return. Like anytime they say guarantee, that's a good sign to run away that nobody can guarantee that really. So that's one thing, or we're not playing the lottery every single night and really banking on winning. We're not trying to just take this job that says that they promise you'll make $200,000. You're not necessarily just buying into this MLM just so that you can try to make more money when without doing the research to see, do you actually make that much money? How many people truly do? It's really being a lot more intentional around trying to get rich quick. Here's how you know if you're trying to get rich quick. If you feel like you have to act now, you have to make this decision immediately, and you have to invest some money, that's usually a sign that it's not going to work out well for you. Or anything that seems too good to be true, it probably is. And so a lot of people I see are always trying to get rich quick. They're trying the latest and greatest. They're trying to just like hack this. And unfortunately for building true wealth, there is no hack. It just takes a long time and a lot of consistency. So please try to avoid getting rich quick. Financial pitfall number seven, this is a biggie, is not having enough money for emergencies. Now here's the deal, I get this. A lot of us get really excited about paying off debt and investing that sometimes we deprioritize the importance of building up a strong emergency fund. Now an emergency fund, the whole goal of that is to cover your butt when things go wrong, which let's be real, Everybody is going to have something go wrong. Nobody has a very, like, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like we think that this financial stuff is just meadows and we all just get to like walk through the flowers and we just like, well, no, like none of us have that type of life. We all have crap that happens to us. Different magnitudes, no doubt about it, but we all have shit we have to trudge through. That's just part of being human. And that's where the emergency fund really helps is the goal of that emergency fund is when shit hits the fan, it prevents you from taking on additional debt. And it really does break that cycle of stress and worry. The issue is sometimes we get so excited about paying off our debt that we don't necessarily think about the emergency fund. We're like, oh, you know what? I can get I can get by with $1,000. No, you really cannot. Not in today's world. $1,000 will cover maybe utilities and food. Like it's not gonna cover that much. And so if you really want to have a decent starting emergency fund, I really would like to recommend one month of living expenses and slowly building up to six months of living expenses. And when you're doing this, like once you hit your one month, then switch gears and simultaneously start investing, paying off debt, and continue contributing to your emergency fund. But that is such a huge financial pitfall that I see is we don't have enough money in an emergency fund. And then when we need it, we're relying on credit cards and debt or borrowing from family members, which is never a good idea. That leads perfectly transitions into financial pitfall number eight which is co-signing for a friend or family member. Co-signing is a very interesting thing because it, it really does bring up a lot of emotions for people. And now usually what I see is it's typically parents co-signing for their kids. And a lot of times it's guilt. It's maybe like, maybe you were trying to get your own finances in order and then your kids are now adults and you're still working on that, but you feel guilty that you weren't, I don't know, able to pay for their college or you weren't able to buy their car or whatever the heck it might be. You feel guilty that you didn't leave them a bunch of money yet. That guilt can sometimes be placed into bad financial decisions like co-signing. Never, and I seriously mean never, co-sign for someone. It is not worth it, and it can cause a ton of tension. Here's a really good way to think about it. Have you ever had your parents do you a favor? And then, intentionally or not, they hold it over your head, 
And you always are hearing, like every time you go for, like over to your, fa- your family's house for a dinner, you hear, remember when I did this, this, and this? Or, hey, do you remember when I bought you this? Or do you remember when I lent you that money? You always hear that. And frankly, in my opinion, it's just not worth it. It's not worth having that. And here's some stats that kind of back that up too. 28% of co-signers saw a drop in their credit score. Now, co-signing, if you're not too familiar with this, it's basically when you are signing your name on behalf of somebody else because maybe they didn't have enough credit, they didn't have enough income, whatever their situation was, they weren't able to get a loan or an apartment or a house lease on their own. So they need somebody else to basically cover that loan in the event that that person doesn't pay. So that's what it is. So 28% of co-signers saw a drop in their credit score. 26% of co-signers said it negatively affected their relationships. Now, another popular type of co-signing is with student loans. 34% of co-signers said that their children made a late student loan payment. Now, remember, if you make a payment and you're co-signing and a payment is late, that affects your credit and your child's credit. So it's hitting both factors here. In addition to that, 65% of co-signers said that they made student loan payments on behalf of their children. So a lot of these parents that are co-signing are still making some of those payments, even though they shouldn't be. It should be on their their children, depending on the agreement. But that is kind of what happens with co-signing. It's a really, really dangerous financial pitfall. I rarely see this work out well. So if you can, do your best to just avoid that situation altogether. Oh my gosh, I am so excited because we are on our final financial pitfall, pitfall number nine, financing a car you can't pay off in two years. Now, why do I say two years? We're definitely going to talk to this, and I think it's no surprise. I'm not a huge fan of car payments, and I have to admit, even though I'm not a fan and I do preach doing everything you can to pay for a car in cash, that's what I do. I recognize that in certain situations, it may not be a reality for a lot of people. I totally get it. So my general rule of thumb is if you must finance a car, get one that you can pay off within two years so that you aren't tied to payments for a very long time. Like it's exhausting if you have a seven-year car loan and you're constantly making $400 a month payments. And then after seven years, you're ready to be done with this loan and your car still isn't worth very much. So then you sell it for a loss. Like there's just, there's a lot that can go into that and you can actually go underwater on your car as well. This is interesting because in today's market, we're actually seeing the used car market be better and less depreciation than normal. So it's kind of a strange, weird market, definitely not the norm. But as a whole, cars are a depreciating asset. That means that they are going to go down in value guaranteed. Not like maybe they'll go down, they do. That is how cars work, they depreciate over time. The thing that really kind of bums me out is for a lot of people, I see that they have more money tied up into their car than they have in their bank or even in their investments. Like their overall net worth isn't even as high as the car loan is. And that kind of bums me out. So my personal rule of thumb, if you must finance a car, totally fine, do what you gotta do, try to get that paid off within two years, which means you're probably getting a three to five year car loan and you're paying a lot of extra on your principal. Okay, we covered a ton of ground today. Hope you enjoyed the nine different financial pitfalls that I see a lot of people fall into. 
Ultimately, I just want to wrap up with this. If it sounds too good to be true with your finances, it probably is. Always second guess things. Always look at the data. Always look at the stats and be really careful about making any type of emotional decision when it comes to your finances. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, do me the biggest favor and leave a five-star review on whatever podcast player you're listening on. It means so much to me and it's truly one of the greatest compliments you can give a podcast host. All right, guys, I will see you next week for another episode of the Money Nerds podcast. Bye. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.